Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of The Loop Podcast by Cognizant. My name is Gaetano, and I've been hosting the Cognizant Podcast for a couple of weeks now. It's been a lot of fun. Today, we have a phenomenal guest, Joshua Giardino, software engineer and growth marketer, previously at Outreach and has had a long, successful career in tech, marketing, SEO, all kinds of uh, niches and industries. And uh, Joshua, it's great to have you on the show and uh, looking forward to talking about your background, your experience, and the impact of data and AI on marketing and sales. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. It's exciting to be here, and it's always a pleasure to catch up with you, Gaetano. Likewise, likewise. So, um, Josh, what angle are you coming from uh, with this subject matter? You know, you're a growth marketer and developer by trade. First of all, how does that even happen? Normally, you're either a developer or you're a growth marketer. You're rarely both. So how did that go? Oh, yeah, that's a fun story. It starts at university. I'm in school for IT and software engineering. I had a habit of reading the paper because they had them there for free. And I had time between classes. I found a help wanted ad at an early SEO agency. This is back before anybody really knew what SEO was. It was the Wild West. And they literally had a cold calling outbound sales floor to explain and educate to potential customers, mostly in the e-commerce space at the time, which was much more competitive. And so I ended up there and discovering the overlap between search engine optimization and web development. It felt like a very natural fit to kind of stay in that course in what was a disruptive and emerging industry. Ended up doing a lot of that and a lot of other things that these days are called marketing ops, but this was back before it was called marketing ops. And just, I guess, carved a niche out for myself where I, that hybrid skill set has made me an asset in ways that a lot of other people aren't because they don't have that same background. Right. So I guess you didn't want to go into outbound sales. <laughs> oh, no. No, thank you. <laughs> yeah, no diss to our sales counterparts, but uh, it's, it's, a tough, it's a tough life out there. And uh, I can't imagine what it would have been like back in those days when uh, SEO was not even a real thing yet as you called it uh, kind of an emerging sort of subject matter back when was this like two, early 2000s maybe? Yes. Yep. Okay. About 2004, company called SEO Matrix that is no longer around. Okay. Interesting. But it was a great experience. And I actually learned a lot about outbound sales from some great folks there. But that's where I also learned my introverted personality doesn't suit that industry very well. Yeah. Yeah. Understood. And um, that's kind of a perfect kind of segue into outreach. Um, you were there over the past five years. Uh, you were involved in a lot of different aspects of marketing and uh, it looks like engineering as well, uh, community operations at Outreach. Um, how would you describe like your role there? Five years is a really long time. Most people don't even last uh, five weeks at a company nowadays. So how did that, uh, how did that go for you? It went well. Outreach was a great company. We got in via acquisition when Outreach bought Sales Hacker, a media brand that during my tenure at Outreach became a community as well and drove community-led growth for Outreach. Um, it was an interesting time to be at Outreach because it was hyper growth up through maturing to where they are now as a category leader. And what I ended up doing there was a hybrid of developing and maintaining the bespoke community platform. They built something custom off of a WordPress framework and ops analytics and strategies, so kind of setting up the backend data analytics for the product and working with their own customer marketing and analytics teams to try to find ways to use intent from the community to drive business value. Interesting. And would you say that they succeeded? In, in, in basically um, being able to leverage the community to drive business value for outreach. What, what would you say those like techniques were in, in terms of like how they tried to extract value from the community? Did it work? Well, I think the most successful motion for them was the go-to-market motion, which is something they were familiar with using event-led techniques. That is, they essentially replaced our sponsors on platform and ran content marketing efforts through the community. We also found a really great use case in case deflection for support, but that was nascent. It was being built out when Rich decided to spin Sales Hacker back out and they sold it on to GTM Fund. 
So was it successful? Definitely, but not without difficulty. Integrating into a larger organization like that is always challenging, and they did a lot of things very well. But ultimately, I think they found more value in sticking to their strengths, which is more demand generation and outbound sales oriented functions. Understood. And just going off on a bit of a tangent on this for a moment, if you were running a software business today, would you consider acquiring a community of sorts, like, you know, an outreach, scooping up a sales hacker type of play? Uh, do you think it's still viable now, um, given like how marketing is transforming and evolving? I think more so than ever, as there's a greater awareness of community and the power it can bring. There's more, shall we say, standardization in the form of frameworks and playbooks that you can run to try to get some early motion successfully. So there's a lower barrier to entry there. And because a lot of companies are pulling back on certain growth motions due to economic uncertainty, community is a great play because it takes time to mature. It can be done kind of minimal, viable, and scaled. And it can also plug into a lot of existing activities already. So for example, I've seen data that suggests that in decision stage customers in their buying cycle, a community-led event is rated as one of their most impactful customer touch points and experiences. It's one of those things that a good positive experience with a strong community will tip customers. It can be a, a deciding factor in which vendor to choose. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm, you know, I think more companies are getting on board with the idea of community-led growth now. I don't know if we need another acronym for it, CLG, but no matter where we land, I think uh, the bottom line is companies and executive leaders are getting more and more on board with either uh, finding a way to piggyback off a community or do it themselves internally. Obviously, like doing it yourself is a lot harder, but it can be done. Uh, there are examples of companies out there who are doing it, but it's not easy, you know, Cognizant being one. But um, in any case, we can keep the conversation flowing, man. So let's talk about data. You know, like this is the thing. Some marketers like me are not super picky about data. I always have the mindset of like, you know, it's all kind of directional at best. I'll just take what I can get and do the best I can with what's available. Other marketers are not as easygoing about it as me. They're like very, very picky. Uh, they care a lot about how the data is sourced, the quality of the data, the um, structured versus non-structured components of data, uh, every little way you can slice, dice, and analyze it. But essentially the question is this, in a world where data is almost like kind of commodity-ish now, um, if you look at like the data providers out there and you were, you were to strip the, uh, the logos and the name brands off of like all the sites and just look at the, the copy and the offerings, it's almost like exactly the same across the board. So uh, what are the differentiators you look for as somebody that's like an engineer slash growth marketer thinking about like B2B growth? Like, what are some of those like key and core differentiators that you look for when it comes to data and how you think about it? Great question. So, I mean, first and foremost, always what I'm concerned about is first party data, because that's where the most actionable and tactical opportunities are. Companies tend to have a huge capacity to generate data and way more data than they tend to take advantage of. That's where you're going to find the opportunity to optimize campaigns, increase pipeline, reduce CAC, really decrease sales cycles and drive retention. I mean, first party data is where it's at, but it requires a commitment from the organization to source and build that stuff. And that's not cheap or easy, if we're being honest. And so that's where the directional versus quality question to me really strikes at home. First party data quality matters, but it's difficult to do well. In third party data, it's all about quality and integration options. But as you know, a lot of that stuff's directional. So quality is more, is it clean? Is it easy to work with? Can I integrate it into my systems? Is it reasonably fresh? Um, so for example, can I tie it to a CRM or data storage, You know, Salesforce, HubSpot, Snowflake? When in doubt, can I hit an API or hit a CSV of the data so maybe I can create a custom workflow or mash it up with something from somewhere else? And then tactically, I'm really looking at contacts data because as you know, that's directional but it's actionably directional. Are they in market to buy? Are they ICP via firmographics? Are they potentially an economic buyer or a champion using title and um, role or where they fit in the org chart as it were? 
what department they're in. Yeah, right on. I, I you know I found some of those third party tools to be surprisingly accurate from my experimentation. I know you probably have as well. Um, you know, for, like just for example, there's a company out there uh, called User Gems. I'm sure you're familiar with them, but they track uh, you know sales triggers like uh, job change data and stuff like that. Um, and that stuff is pretty much uh, on the spot, on the money all the time. I think they just scrape it off LinkedIn. <laughs> that, that, Probably, that's my yeah. take. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know if you ever experienced, uh, you know, any of those tools and and what kind of you know campaigns you can play around with with their data. But it's it's I guess the point is third party data has gotten really good over the years. Definitely. And going back to community-led growth motions, that use case you mentioned, job changes. If you have a strong rapport with somebody and they change roles, if your tool was valuable to their workflow, they're going to be a champion for you, even if they're not an economic buyer. So knowing that stuff and starting those conversations early rather than later means a lot. Exactly. Exactly. Well, the thing with data is it's only as good as you basically um, put it to use, right? Like you can have as much of it as possible, but unless you actually um, put it into practice, then it's not really worth that much. So um, what's your take on like the kinds of campaigns you can run with like more enhanced or more enriched data today? Obviously you have like go to market, you have outbound led, you have product led, you have community or maybe partner led. Um, there's probably some stuff you can do that's really interesting with inbound and lead scoring, like with all the possibility out there, what's your take on how like enriched B2B data can make some of those motions, uh, more fluid. Oh, big question with a lot of directions we could run, but I mean, briefly (laughs) with inbound, for example, beyond lead scoring and quickly segmenting out your non ICP contacts, you can use that B2B data to target and segment folks based on their point in the journey where the right information or the right brand experience can tip them over the edge. This is actually a great opportunity for marketing and sales to align or marketing success, even marketing the product to find points of alignment on the customer journey and get key pieces of content in front of the end user earlier in their journey and kind of drive the tipping point sooner, ultimately leading to shorter deal cycles. So tools I've seen deployed for stuff like that high spot where sales teams are trying to use customer marketing collateral or other go-to-market collateral, get it in front of prospects, and then it's scoring how they've read it, what impact that content had on the decision journey later. So using that information and maybe adding it to nurture campaigns for contacts who aren't quite prospects yet, and using it to see if not only you can get them over their lead score, but also to segment out their intent to see where they are in the journey. Cognizant has a lot of amazing data in this space, actually where they have not only their intent data, but really quality contact information and lead scoring data. And so with outbound led, it's like everything. You're using enriched B2B data for everything, whether it's an ABM play, display advertising, which is these days so driven by third-party data. Uh, outbound sales motions, you're using third-party data for everything, I think. So outbound, everything. Um, product led gets interesting because if you have enriched B2B customer data, and you're combining it with your first party feature data, you might be able to create a product-led SEO opportunity where you're deciding, discovering which features are sticky, which drive adoption and therefore drive retention. And so getting that in the hands of your marketing team, creating inbound queries and content around how to use that feature, how to get to that feature quickly, is potentially a big win, not only for driving retention, but also for driving support case deflection because Ultimately, customers are going to Google well before they're going to your support portal. And there are a few folks out there who have dubbed this product-led SEO. And I think it's it's an apt title because it's very niche. It's not your first go-to-market motion. But as your product gets adoption and grows, it should absolutely be part of your motion. Yeah, man. So, so much gold in there. Um, the product-led SEO is kind of a, an interesting one. I've been, I've been seeing that bubble up more in, in the in the community as well. Um, I remember the days where uh, you couldn't even, within uh, the world of uh, content marketing and SEO, you couldn't even mention your product because um, it was decided that if you if you would do that, you would be seen as too salesy, or or trying to create like a thinly veiled kind of like product pitch within your content 
But now the game has really changed, not just to uh, product-led content, but product-led SEO, where almost like SEO and content and the product together are kind of blended into this one beautiful, blissful thing. <laughs> I don't know if you've uh, seen any, any cool examples of that, but um, I saw one company that's in the uh, space of competing with Excel. They turned their homepage into the product. Like if you were to go to the product, it would be their homepage. The homepage just gets you into the product. That's the interesting. Homepage. Yeah. That's a great way to drive stickiness, huh? Yeah. 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 So I've, I've been seeing some like really interesting plays on the, on the product led like SEO side. And, uh, I think with the introduction now of, um, kind of these like, uh, in app experiences, product tours that are live embedded into your site. It's a pretty interesting opportunity to get like really high intent traffic to the site and then get them right into the basically the sandbox. So that's uh, that could be the future there, man. Definitely. I think a great example of a brand that did that well before it was recognized as product led SEO was the hosting company DigitalOcean. They were a challenger brand against large cloud. What did they do? They combined a community-based motion with a product-led motion. They got developers to create example use cases of what you could do with their cloud tools. So for example, you should have to spin up a server, install Docker on it, and start running your application. And that ended up becoming a powerhouse for them because if you're searching for a how-to on anything, you often have these very simple one-click copy and paste examples on a cloud platform already. And then strong CTAs to sign up, get your free credits and from there, it's all about their product marketing motion. So. Exactly, exactly. Um, well, let, let's jump into AI, man. Uh, I, I know you've been dabbling quite a bit in AI. I've been dabbling a little bit uh, myself. What What are some of the things that come to mind uh, in terms of like how marketers can utilize AI to do things better, faster, differently, more efficiently? Uh, I mean, there's obvious like, yeah, pop a topic into chat GPT, let it spit out a 3000 word AI article. Uh, let's, let's go beyond that. Um, what, I don't know what comes to mind for you when, uh, it comes to AI and doing things differently in B2B marketing. Interesting. So better, there's a ton of opportunity that has yet to be fully tapped because of the limitations of context with LLMs like chat GPT, they have a narrow window of data you can feed to them in any given prompt. So like going into ChatGPT and trying to get it to summarize a big article for you is tricky, but that problem is quickly getting solved. So I see a world where, uh, think Jarvis from Iron Man, but for your company, it has your support content, your sales content, your marketing content, a whole wealth of context about you to draw from as you're asking it creative and strategic decisions. So for example, targeting competitors or doing competitive analysis, gap analysis, um, lower hanging fruit, stuff that can be actualized today and very quickly, testing ad creative, trying to drive click through. So one of my favorite use cases for it is when brainstorming article titles, speeding at a simple prompt, like given this list of titles, score them for click through rate and organic search. And it will do things like spit out a CSV for me that I copy and paste into a Google sheet. And it'll have two columns of scoring data, likelihood that it'll have a high click-through rate and likelihood that it'll rank well in Google. And so now I can quickly ideate and I can either generate those titles through GBT, through human brainstorming or a combination of the two. I, I got to steal that one. Uh, it's it's one that I know is in the back of my toolkit. I keep forgetting to try it, but there's been numerous occasions where I'm like, all right, I need to come up with a great title. And I'm like, all right, let me just uh, use my good old manual tactics. But that one <laughs> is saved for the next time I need it in, in the bag of tricks. But that's gold. We got a lot. Thanks for the reminder. No worries. We got a lot of mileage of it at Sales Hacker. We used it constantly for that because there's always... A million different ways you could spin a title. I believe it. I believe it. Um, yeah, this is like the advanced version of like those. Remember those like headline tester tools like Monster Analyzer or Share Through? Like this is like the much even cooler, better version of that. <laughs> um, cool. Create cool. a much larger data pool. Yeah, definitely. Um, and more, 
I think a faster way to get variants too. Like those tools actually wouldn't give you any variation or any idea of how to improve them. It was just like, Hey, here's your score. It can be better. Give it another go. <laughs> Agreed. Um, yeah. Very frustrating. Sometimes you're banging your head against the wall, trying to improve that score a few points. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember doing that. Like, Oh, I got a 76. It recommends that the best click through rate happens when you get above an 80 score. Well, how do you get above an 80? And then it gives you some cheesy advice, like add more emotion words. <laughs> it's like, well, how do I do that? I don't know. Um, yeah. So, um, all right. Well, that's some, those are some really good tips. Uh, do you think that, um, like, I don't know, there's kind of like a two-way street when it comes to AI and marketing. There's the, um, like, the individual drive of the person owning the channels and tactics and like doing the stuff. And then, you know, that's the bottom up uh, or just like bottom straight away. Just like, Hey, I'm an individual contributor. It's up to me to like play around with stuff and do my job, like in a better, more efficient, faster, more creative way. Then I think there's also top down where marketing leaders can do a better job uh, equipping their teams with uh, AI tools and technologies and stuff. And also like the knowledge around it. Um, you know, the enablement of AI on your teams. What, I don't know, what advice would you give to marketing leaders out there who want to enable their teams, maybe don't know where to get started or what to recommend? I think the first concern most marketing leaders and most organizations have are around compliance, privacy, and protecting IP. We've seen a lot of that in the early days of ChatGPT. And so I think that's the first place to start. Make sure the company has policies and practices. Meet with legal, privacy, IT, your information security teams. Try to identify the stakeholders there who can help you understand the requirements that they care about. And if there's not a policy already in place within the organization, try to be a champion for it. Bring together these stakeholders, have this conversation because this innovation isn't going away. Odds are you have employees already using it. So it's much better to funnel them into the right way to use it for the company based on its compliance concerns. Speaking of compliance, uh, that's an interesting point. Uh, it came up today actually on a client call. Uh, one of my clients actually asked, um, should we block GPT bot from crawling our site? Uh, oh, interesting. We got, yeah, we got into a bit of a discussion on that. Um, my take was ultimately, you know, what incentive is it for you to let GPT bot crawl your site and repurpose your content. Um, I don't know. I don't really see too much value in it. What's your take, Josh? Generally agreed. I mean, you have to think about the forward-looking use cases. So for example, to what degree does OpenAI's ChatGPT algorithm control Bing results as they've started those test integrations? And the same question for Bard with Google and whether or not to let Bard crawl. In general, there is no value for the brand except insofar as it relates to discoverability for the brand. So if we can see and make those connections, okay, to what degree ChatGPT's algorithm is literally that used via Bing, for example, versus some kind of framework of Bing, but, or rather some framework of GPT, but trained on a different set of data. So if the crawl from ChatGPT via OpenAI is not impacting Bing's results, which it probably isn't, then obviously you want to cut that off. Why are you going to help them basically mine your data for free and then essentially help your competitors use that context to generate their own content, do keyword research, et cetera? That's giving up a huge advantage that you don't want to give. Insofar as algorithms like BARD start to influence Google search, though, the benefit of being crawled and indexed by their databases is going to be related to co-citation. How frequently are you cited in their data set so that when that query is written, you come up? It's going to be a delicate balance, but I think in the here and now, the best bet is no, cut that off and don't let them have any access to your data until clear value propositions are understood for your business. You put that much more eloquently than I did to uh, my client today, but I think you made some very compelling points about co-citation and kind of like, you know, having a delicate balance, but you know, it's still kind of too early to tell at the end of the day. I think that's kind of where it's at. So we'll keep an eye on it and see where it goes. But for now I, I agree, like there's probably no incentive uh, other than discoverability, but that's TBD. 
So yeah, I guess we can march forward and block for now. Um, I wanted to get into um, like sales and the role of AI. Um, there's there's a lot of stuff happening with sales and AI. Like there's obvious stuff like call transcriptions and magic call summaries and like set you know setting automatic ne- next steps to all the people that were on the call and then that can kind of flow into like CRM automation as well but I don't know what, coming from sales hacker and outreach and being really deeply involved in the world of sales over the last like five years like what do you see the opportunities for AI and sales um, just at a broad level oh interesting question can I Derail it briefly to focus on risks. So if you're, if you have a sales product, there's a lot of risk coming from this disruptive innovation. I remember from my time at Sales Hacker, we saw first Gong with conversational intelligence, and they were an early leader. They had entrenched a position, and were able to build an entire business off of it. Outreach added Kaya for transcription, and did so at great effort and cost. Now. That feature set is table stakes, no longer a differentiating innovation that's available via API from a dozen different vendors. It can be integrated into any product at any time. So, I mean, for sales, there is a whole wealth of opportunity, but there's also a whole wealth of risk for B2B SaaS companies that they need to be wargaming and planning for. With the copycat um, stuff happening so fast and so furiously, like, I don't know. There's a lot of these companies out there that think they may have some differentiation. They get all gung ho on it. And then before you know it, uh, Hey, 10 more people are doing the same thing. Um, do you see that basically as like an inevitable part of just the, the speed of which companies are innovating and like the way things are going, you can get things going through an API, as you said, is, is, is the name of the game basically from like a product standpoint, there will get to a place where there's, no differentiation available, and the only way to win is with brand and marketing? I, I don't think so. I think you'll find workflow and integration partnership opportunities to innovate and differentiate as well. But a lot of the strength is going to come from marketing and branding because how will you get users to even be aware of your feature differentiation how will you survive long enough to develop said feature differentiation and drive adoption once you have developed it? So, I mean, it's it's a three-legged stool. You're going to have to focus on products, partners, and brand. And that's where community-led motions start to come in because you get um, like a horseshoe effect. It touches the entire customer journey all the way down through retention and advocacy, which are a lot of things companies don't think about. But much like what Cognizant is doing with this podcast, you're finding people who really care about your product and leveraging them to tell your story for you. And so if you have successful customers, they're going to be champions of your brand in every space they go into. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Like when you're in a space like Cognizant uh, and, and differentiation is hard and um, <clears throat> there's the, uh, you know, um, the three-headed monster, uh the 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 brand begin begins with Z and I. I'm not going to say their name. You can probably guess who they are. Um, how do you fight back against that? Where there's like one giant mega player, uh, then there's like a couple of like second and third place, you know, fights going on like tier below that, and then there's like a bunch of really really small small balls, um, and everybody basically has like more or less the same spiel. The only way that it seems that differentiation is happening is through marketing and brand and content and evangelism. And to an extent, it's almost like whoever makes the most noise uh, wins. Uh, Whoever is the most visible all the time wins. Whoever becomes top of mind at that moment of need wins. So so like, I don't know, in in a category like this, do you feel like maybe there's not much left in terms of differentiation, even though you said there's workflows and maybe you can uh, really do a really good job with like product marketing and show how like, Hey, here's use case, you know, related content on how you can use, for example, cognizant data to carry out campaigns. But other than that, do you think it's more of just like a land grab of attention game? 
definitely. It's about claiming real estate. It's like being present in like downtown New York or downtown Miami. If you don't have prime real estate, you're going to have a much harder time landing the kind of exposure you want. And in that kind of environment, it's not just about brand equity. It's about being able to survive long enough to run some of those other motions. So in the case of taking the other perspective of that, I mean, yes, whoever's making the most noise is going to be able to catch a lot more of the in-market buyers, but there's still the retention and churn aspects of things. And that's where your opportunity to differentiate. And so that's where customer marketing motion is really going to matter. You're going to want to know why people are leaving, what's not working for them, try to fix it. You're going to want to know why your champions are your champions so that you can differentiate yourself through branding and marketing by getting that message out more effectively and efficiently. And then um, basically taking it to your customers in some of your product use cases and stuff like that, setting up versus style pages that show the product differentiation, making sure your use cases highlight potential limitations of existing solutions. It's pretty, those cut yeah. it's pretty cutthroat out there, man. As you're going through all this, I'm like, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> I've done that. I've done that. Uh, there was a, a convert kit. They did a, a, a interesting bottom of funnel teardown post on like the top, uh, you know, email platform providers out there for like marketing automation. And uh, I don't know. I, I guess they were really ripped apart for being so-called cheesy in their approach where like um, they were really fickle about cherry picking like uh, negative reviews from their competitors and stacking themselves at like the top of the list and, and making themselves seem like in an exaggerative way so much better than everyone else. And then just using so-called SEO force to, you know, bulldoze their way to the top of the search positions and uh, take cheap shots at the competition. Um, I don't know. What's your take about those kinds of like cheeky competitor like tactics? Uh, those are great examples of ways to harm your brand mm. reputation because they do come off as transparent and self-serving in ways that undermine your credibility. And you have to be super careful about that because there are no second first chances. So credibility is everything. And they could have ran a similar tactic in a way that didn't attract the backlash and could have been transparent and honest and built more brand strength. And this is where strong customer relationships or community-led motions start to come in because you have a sounding board that you can go kind of take this stuff to early. Who They have skin in the game because they use your product and they care about it, but at the same time, they don't report to you and they're not beholden to your KPIs, so they're not afraid to give you the hard advice you need to hear. Yeah, yeah. Right on, man. Right on. Uh, it's uh, fascinating how all this is kind of just uh, come in full circle. You know, I was uh, recently doing some competitor content and um, in my kind of research of doing competitor content for a client, I found that a, another competitor was revealing the pricing of my client, but the pricing was incorrect. Oof. Yeah. And so basically we just created a little cease and desist got that thing shot down and within a week that thing was wiped off the index. So yeah. Nice. Yeah. Nice. That's one time you definitely want to have a friend in legal. Definitely. Definitely. So yeah, I mean, that just goes to show you how cutthroat uh, the marketing game has become now, especially in B2B um, as categories get more cluttered and crowded. But I guess, uh, dude, this, we could probably go on forever about this stuff, but maybe we can just get into the lightning round questions and, uh, you know, get to the, to the home stretch here. So, um, basically we have two quick lightning round questions and maybe they're not so simple and so quick, but essentially, uh, what is one thing that you would recommend marketers should stop doing? Okay. So my innate nature, whenever I hear these questions is to immediately cheat. Um, one thing, no, but I can do a few things. (laughs) Sounds good. Um, So first and foremost, don't stay siloed in your function and on your team. This is actually something that being in a large organization like Outreach really helped hammer home for me, is that there's a lot of things going on and a lot of overlap happening throughout the organization. And so knowing like either your direct equivalent in another team or just making friends with people on other teams to stay abreast of things is super valuable. So product, success, and sales 
are all going to have information and assets that help you add more business value faster as a marketer. So one example of that is you can find ways to start measuring support case deflection. It's something that marketing assists with. That's generally tracked within larger organizations on a dollar basis. So they can attribute that very similarly to the way they attribute revenue. So if marketing motions can start to demonstrate a dollar deflection there, it adds strength and value to your team and can be used to request more resources later. Other examples of that we've discussed briefly were like bringing sales collateral or feature collateral up sooner in the journey to help users adopt more efficiently drive retention. Another thing I'd say is don't sleep on generative AI. So chat GPT, stuff like that, it seems a little overwhelming, but it also seems hype-ish and fad-ish. But the truth is we're in the early stages of something truly disruptive that's going to change the world in ways we don't fully understand yet. And so don't miss it. You're early. Be a part of it. Agreed. And uh, don't gate everything. <laughs> Going back to yeah. like, community-led motions, you have to give before you get. And so make sure that a lot of your quality content is user-facing, that they don't have to constantly be signing up for it. Because adding that additional friction in an era where buyer journeys are largely driven by more self-seeking around information than traditional sales cycles, you're missing out on opportunities by not allowing them to educate themselves, especially because you're going to, in allowing users to educate themselves, all you're doing is keeping your funnel from getting clogged with non-core ICP folks. Well said. Very well said. Uh, to the point to the point of uh, gated content, um, Cognizant a few years back uh, stripped all the gated content off their site, made everything ungated and prioritized SEO. Um as a result, you know, they've seen massive organic traction and growth by doing that. Uh, I was doing also a deep dive into um, industries where like one competitor was really prioritizing gated content and the other was prioritizing SEO just to see what the difference would be on the uh, monthly brand volume impact of that. And um, Interesting. Yeah, I found one unbelievable example, actually, where uh, one brand was, um, I won't say the name of the brand, but the category they were in is something you might know about. Uh, it's called graph databases. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Uh, one company that was gating everything had a monthly search volume of like 1,000 brand searches a month. The competitor that had everything ungated, everything was wide open, um, had like the same amount of content on the site, but the only difference is that their organic traffic was like massive compared to the, the gated content site. Uh, these guys had 15K monthly search volume on, on the brand side. Um, now that's to mention like a five, six X difference in like overall organic traffic. So um, you definitely don't want to be, in my view, the gated content site and heading into 2024, uh, especially in an AI world where visibility and co-citation, as you said before, just matters more than it ever has in the past. Um, I don't know. What's your take, Josh? Totally agreed. I mean, the helpful content update, for example, is probably smashing a lot of gated sites down even further. Mm. And I would suggest that you should follow up with an article on that. That's an interesting area of research. I would love to see more of that. Uh, yeah, I've got I've got the archives. I, I've never put it out, but I probably should. Um, <laughs> it's just sitting there. Uh, man, you just reminded me also of, of uh, something else with the um, with the helpful content update. I'm surprised actually that uh, I'll just I'll just call them out. Not a big deal. Tech Target. Okay. How do they rank so well if everything's paywalled? Have you ever have you ever realized like every single article they have is paywalled and it's yet yep. they still rank for everything under the sun? That's pretty frustrating yeah, that because is. there's got to be some user signals there that are not congruent with what you would expect to be helpful content. I have to imagine some of that is brand related signals, some of that is click through related signals for sure. As you noted, the the mysteries of rank brain where they do have intense signals. <laughs> I still wonder to what degree they roll Google Analytics signals in, so things like bounce rate sure. and stuff like that. So I, I agree, that's an anomaly. And <laughs> the helpful content update is 
erroneously named. <laughs> you know, the mysteries of rank brain. It sounds like a series that um, you should probably launch or something. Uh, I would definitely tune in for that. Um, <laughs> then uh, <clears throat> I guess to, to the final home stretch here to wrap it up, what's a couple of things or maybe one thing or theme um, you would recommend marketers should start doing? Well, playing off of not sleeping on generative AI, start using generative AI as a research assistant. Don't necessarily see it as a tool that does A to B solutions. For example, writing articles or brainstorming keywords, but look at it as a tool for helping you understand your audience, their pains, uh, the unique value propositions your product may have in solving those pains. The database is, I think, circa 2021, but they're rapidly trying to update that faster and give it the ability to search the web. And there are some third-party tools that are built off of OpenAI's API that lets you search the web already. So you can really get some interesting insights on your audience as well as your competitors and their audience and find positions for differentiability. As we were discussing before, that madcap race for real estate in crowded markets, these are the kinds of opportunities are going to help you position yourself in distinctive ways. And these are traditionally difficult tasks because of the amount of data you have to aggregate to get that kind of insight. But because of the size of the corpora that ChatGPT has, it's able to kind of create some really interesting insights efficiently. And I think that'll improve as we're able to feed it um, brand level data more efficiently. So that's a very interesting future opportunity. I'd also suggest start learning or implementing product-led and community-led content marketing motions if you're not already. There's tons of opportunity here. And going back to the arms race, uh, UGC loops are very powerful and low-hanging fruit for growth. And they just create great positive brand experiences for customers or potential future customers. The real race is going to be about educating solution-unaware folks earlier in the journey in a way that gives them a little bit of brand loyalty because they feel like they got value from your brand even before they were a product user. And I think the biggest one, make time for upskilling if you haven't already. I mean, we're in a disruptive era, so new skills are gonna be required. Data science, maybe intro to Python, programs like Reforge for growth marketing, learning about growth loops, how to drive efficient scalable systems. Uh, all of these will make you more efficient and investing in yourself is always the best investment you'll ever make. So, I mean, definitely do that. Very well said. Very well said. You know, I was talking to somebody else today about like, you know, he, marketing leader, a client of mine, he was like, you know, um, back in the day, like we used the, the, the primary role we used to hire for was like content writer, you know, mm -hmm. like marketing content writer, marketing copywriter. Uh, he, you know, he made the, 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 kind of like this sort of like implied suggestion that like that role is kind of going to be going away almost like there may be a, a point where it's like you're more of like a marketing journalist researcher that applies copy based on the insights you get from your research. Like you can't just show up anymore and just start writing copy. You know, you used to be yeah. able to do that probably like 10 years ago. Um, but today, uh, you really need to have something interesting to say, like like that post I shared with you, Josh, uh, regarding uh, Peter Caputa, the CEO of Databox, where he's like, yeah, you know, instead of doing eight SEO articles in a month, I would do two, but I would make it the greatest possible thing out there by talking to like 10 experts in the field, compiling unique data, maybe running some surveys, Right. Um, and I'm sure probably to your point on uh, AI being an assistant rather than a point A to point B kind of get this done for me job, just like help me uh, along the way to a task completion. Um, that was basically the point. So I don't know. What's your take on all that? Well, when I first saw the article, when you shared it, I definitely thought that's that's the future of content marketing. I think the insight that the general days of the copy smith are the meaning Smith. <laughs> yeah. in a very real sense. Yes. It used yeah. to be, I mean, even let's say 20 years ago, it was more about like the, almost like a madman esque image. 
you either had a knack for gaining the insight and writing the copy that was sticky and punchy, whereas now we're transitioning increasingly to a data-driven approach, uh, going back full circle to which we were discussing uh, earlier today about how users really, or rather marketers really need to focus on message testing as opposed to simply user testing. Uh, that's a great example of this transition that's already occurred pre-AI. And now being able to spin up variants to grab deep research on user pains and value propositions that might help you smith that copy more efficiently. But yeah, the game has definitely changed, but the idea that machines are going to be writing the bulk of text, I think is totally incorrect. I think humans are just going to spend a lot more time doing interesting work and filtering outputs, research outputs and stuff like that. So for example, one great use of generative AI, not so easy to do with the free tier of ChatGPT, but with some of the premium tools is connecting data to the LLM and asking it to do exploratory analysis. So finding interesting data sets or creating interesting data sets, doing unique research. And then even if you don't have developer skills, using generative AI to help you do that exploratory analysis, generate graphics off of the data sets, and then turning that into, I guess these days will be 100x content because 10x just isn't good enough anymore. 10x was uh, the goalpost uh, back in the Rand Fishkin era, and now it's, it's moved to 100x, as you said. Final thing, do you see a world where like the, the you remember like uh, when you wanted to like run a blog, and you need and you needed to have like that feature creative image to like be the open graph image when you share it on social and blah blah blah. Do you see a world where like a designer doing illustrations is gone and it's just all like mid journey generative AI doing like the bulk of that stuff? I know some companies still kind of like hang their their heads high on the whole uh, illustrator design brand feel thing. There's like a pride to it. Like if you look at Intercom for example, they they have mm -hmm. like these really sort of like unique custom illustrations for every single piece of content they put out. But then again, like most startups that I work with, they just don't have the time, patience or desire to like go down that path. What, what's your take on the balance you, you could strike versus like brand uniqueness and identity versus like, hey, let's just like use MidJourney to like have generative AI, uh, you know, imagery to scale our blog. Like what's your take on that? I don't think it's going to be an either or value proposition so much. I think as the tooling around generative models gets better, it's going to be possible to do things like get it to generate within parameters. So include this brand asset or these brand palettes and maybe pull from a world of already created stock imagery. But practically and tactically for today, I think we think of it the same way we can think of luxury brands. So like a startup, the barrier to entry and the expectations are going to be lower for a bespoke brand experience. But if you're um, a high-end jewelry or fashion or clothing brand, the expectation is going to be much higher. And so there's going to be some industries or even some companies that choose to do it as a differentiating factor to rise above the noise or to create something distinctive about themselves. And others will be perfectly happy with a more templated scalable approach and i think the market will bear both with like i said some exceptions for higher end brands for the expectations a little different but those are mostly uh, hedonic rather than utilitarian value propositions yeah. and then you don't necessarily need a <laughs> super expensive suit or car or, mm -hmm. you know yeah well, well said um i personally uh you know i love the mid-journey style like it's just pretty sweet how you can just like enter a prompt and describe something and see what it spits back out at you but i also agree on the flip side of that there is something you know to 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 the extent like this prestige like when you see this like you know beautiful intercom illustration that comes out you know like you know that's kind of their identity as a brand but also to your point you know feeding it a model where it's like here's our palette here's our uh, you know, some guidelines, right? And then seeing what AI can produce based on historicals and guidelines that you feed it. I think there's definitely a very interesting future in that. And probably whoever cracks the code to that is going to be uh, on their way to a very successful startup. Definitely, especially with low-hanging fruit, like proposals and uh, presentations and stuff like that. Like that's 
those are things humans spend a lot of time on. I don't want to say unnecessarily, but the details and formatting are perhaps the unnecessary component as we move forward with generative AI. Yeah, whoever cracks the code on sales proposals for generative AI is going to be uh, swimming in cash. Like imagine, uh, you know, you have like uh, a call with a prospect. They, you know, they want a proposal and the AI basically just summarizes the key aspects that were discussed on the call, whips up a, you know, AI generated actual proposal with like branding and formatting and creative and it's, you know, aligned to, you know, company brand deck. And it's all put together and all it requires is just like a quick human review. And then you just ship that out rather than manual kind of cookie cutter, cut and paste. <laughs> I don't know if you see a world where that ever happens, but that would be pretty cool. Oh, definitely. Also in the legal version of that, which is the contract side of things and enterprise sales cycles, which from experience, I've seen it can take quite a while just to get the paperwork correct because there's the negotiations and there's the drafting. And we've seen uh, ChatGPT can pass the bar. So going back to the idea of feeding it context from within the organization, whoever cracks the code on streamlining legal document review and contract negotiation for enterprise B2B companies is going to do very well as well. There's a whole industry there. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'd be shocked if the DocuSigns of the world weren't already trying to figure that out. <laughs> uh, cool. Cool. Well, I mean, Josh, we could talk about this all night. Um, I want to thank you for uh, doing this interview. And I think the audience will really get a ton of value out of it. You bring a lot of uh, different and unique perspectives um, to this series that we actually haven't really had before. Um, I think I've talked, you know, on various kind of like smorgasbord of different topics like i've i've spoken on like message testing and hardcore seo stuff and product marketing but never really this nice big blend of like ai sales and marketing and all the things we talked about today so um i just want to thank you for your time again and i i really enjoyed this talk and i i know that the audience out there will love it as well so thanks for doing it my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I really do hope the audience gets something from it. I'm looking forward to seeing what kind of feedback we get. Definitely, definitely. Uh, anyway, if people want to hit you up and connect, uh, what's the best way for them to do it? Uh, probably LinkedIn. It's one of the few social media sites I actually use. Um, cool. It's LinkedIn slash in slash Joshua Builds Things. Joshua Builds Things. I love it, man. Well, with that said, let's wrap up. And uh, thanks again for doing this interview. See you guys next time.